It's a blessing to be here. Um, I go to Grace Evangelical Free Church in La Mirada, which is the church that you people stole Rick from about three, four years ago now, and we miss him desperately. He is a gift. I hope that you guys appreciate the gift that he is. Uh, he is a friend, a personal friend, as well as someone um, that I've seen in ministry, and um, we had interactions with him there, and it was always such a blessing to spend time with him. Another blessing that I was uh, really privileged and kind of got to know Rick over the last couple of years a little better is I was on his dissertation committee for his PhD, his doctorate. Apparently, the people, the real people on the committee required him to have someone that knew a little bit about philosophy to be on his committee, and I must be the only person Rick knows in the entire, you know, Western Hemisphere that knows anything about philosophy, so he invited me to partake on his committee which was cool. I enjoyed doing it. I got to read his dissertation. I don't know about you. My dissertation has probably not been read by anyone outside of my committee. So I think five total people have read yours is better than mine, honestly. So you're, maybe more people have read yours, um, but I'm one of the first handful of people that, were, that was able to read it. The, there's a, at the end of the dissertation, you have to do the, the defense. So Rick flew out. You guys probably even remember. You probably were praying for your pastor. It was on the East Coast. Well, not quite in Kentucky on the Eastern time zone. So I had to get up early. And the, the Southern Seminary sort of, I, 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 had, I spent some time there. It's kind of a hoity-toity place. There's sort of a uniform at Southern Seminary that if you, want to be no, if you want to be noticed, you have to wear khaki pants, a blue jacket, a nice collared shirt with a tie, and a little, I just learned last hour, it's called a pocket square. I've never known what those things were. I've just always seen them but the little pokey pocket thing that sticks out. That's what you have to look like to be recognized at this particular place. Um, and so I got up feeling a lot of pressure. I was like, man, it's six o'clock in the morning. I'm going to be Skyped in. So I put on my coat. I didn't put a tie on. I just couldn't quite swallow that pill. But I put a jacket on. I put a collared shirt on. And I left my shorts on because they weren't going to see my legs anyway. So I'm sitting at my computer at six o'clock in the morning, staring at the screen. And we do all of our introductions. And I hadn't met the other gentleman. And then Rick's there. And sort of, I remember that feeling kind of nervous, getting ready ready for it, wondering what kinds of questions you're going to have to answer. And they said, okay, we're about to start. Do you have any questions before we go in? And I, I said, yeah, I, I have to just ask a question. Rick, are you wearing a Bruce Lee t-shirt? Because he was. He was wearing a jacket with a black and white picture of Bruce Lee as big as his entire front of his chest. And that's actually, I literally was like, I think that's Bruce Lee. Is that Bruce Lee? And then I, my brain's like, why in the world is Rick wearing a Bruce Lee t-shirt? I thought maybe it was sort of Rick's I'm punk rock Southern California Hawaii guy and I'm just going to be here and just own this dissertation. And that would have been admirable. And it was, what he did was admirable enough. He showed up with one of his son's shirts that was too small and so he was stuck wearing a Bruce Lee t-shirt. Um, so... <laughs> Somewhere at Southern Seminary to this day, there's a photograph of Rick with his Bruce Lee t-shirt and then the committee, which is me, a disembodied head on a computer screen. Do they post those things somewhere, I think? Yeah, so that's got, we've got to be the winners of most interesting photograph for the dissertation committee. All right, let me pray for us. We'll jump into the passage, see what the Spirit has for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Um, Thank you for the, the gift of yourself, the gift of being able to know you, that we can truly have fellowship with you, have relationship with you, and to know you as Lord and Savior and as friend and encourager. And I pray that we would all grow in that knowledge and that love uh, for you simultaneously this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have any of you either 
recently or maybe in the past filled out an application or re- used a resume in some sort of form, right? And, and when you do that, whether it's, you know, a college application for trying to get a scholarship or trying to get a job, one of the things you do is you list all of the things that you find impressive about yourself, or maybe you don't think they're all that impressive, but you're hoping that other people will find them impressive. That's just what we do. And it's one of those times in our culture, we're sort of all given a little bit of a pass to stretch the truth a little bit, right? So you kind of try to put things in the best, you know, possible spin so that on the resume, they jump out. So I'm not saying any of you have ever done this, but let's imagine maybe you were babysitting some 10-year-olds while they were playing Xbox. You might put that on your resume as past experience in human resource management overseeing a technology team or something like that. (laughs) It's the kind of thing we tend to try to put on our resumes and then hope that they don't ask us too much about it. Here we see Paul giving us his resume. That's the first part of this passage is he's... He's talking about these people and trying to give a defense for them trying to argue that these Christians need to start doing more things. And so we start right in verse 4 where he says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for the confidence in the flesh, I have more. So he's going to give his list. Here's all the reasons you might think that Paul has self-confidence in his own resume. And it's actually followed by a really impressive list. And the list is sort of broken into two categories. So I want you, we're going to look at it in a second. Think of these two categories. Some of the things that show up here on Paul's resume list are sort of status, things he was born into. They weren't achievements he did on his own, but they were just sort of blessings that he received. And then the other things that show up on the list are achievements. We can see ourselves in that, right? Some of, our, some of the blessings and the benefits are merely by maybe what family we were born in and all of these other things or some of our own achievements. And they're all things that we sort of hold dear. So look at those two categories, and we, he starts listing them out in verse 5. So the first three are sort of status things, things he didn't have any control over. Circumcised on the eighth day, like a good Jewish boy should. The people of Israel, right? But not merely an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, right? These are impressive things. We don't quite fully grasp how impressive these are, but his original audience would have not mistaken it at all. Like, oh, wow. Like, there would have been some jealousy in the congregation when he's telling people when this letter is being read. Wow, he's got it good. Then the next things are things of his own achievement. A Hebrew of Hebrews. That means he's, he didn't just sort of sit in his place. He's actually worked into it. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Right? Not every Pharisee took it upon themselves to sort of go out and stamp down this growing church movement, and Paul did. You get this idea of, why wow, he's, he's this energetic, he's, this, um, he's a go-getter, he's on the make, he's a climber, right? whatever you want to say, this is who Paul was. His resume is very impressive, to the point that there's a statement here that all of us as New Testament believers, and if you're a visitor, you might not, but most of us will have some red bells going off in our head when we see this, where he says in verse 6, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
Does that catch anyone else's odd? Like, wait, as to righteousness under the law, blameless? It's as if, at least, what he's saying here is, well, by doing all these things, I was righteous and blameless. And we know that's not the message of the New Testament. It's certainly not the message of Paul. What he says, and he's going to pick it back up later, and we'll talk about then. What he's really meaning is, according to my way of thinking in that time, right? So previous Paul, early Paul, before Christian Paul, according to my way of thinking, I did it all just right. I was blameless. I didn't make mistakes, right? I had it all just exactly the way I needed to do. And so that was a righteousness that was coming from his own. And we'll see that. He references it later as well. So that's his resume. He's going into some detail. He wants us to see how impressive this is. And we're going to see in later, the only reason he's doing that is so he can knock it all down. Tell us how it's not as impressive as we might think. Before we move to that, though, I, I just want us to pause because I think there might be some temptation for us to say, we don't really do that today. We don't really create sort of spiritual autobiographies that impress us. Like, I think we might tend to think, well, that was sort of a thing back then, but we just don't do that. And so I wanted to create a thought experiment for myself. Like, what would be an impressive spiritual autobiography for me? I've got two daughters. One's 12 and one's 15. At some point, I'm guessing, one or both of them will bring some young man home and say, hey, father, this is who I would like to marry. I'm thinking that'll be probably 30 or 40 or 50 years from now. But whenever it happens, so what would be the impressive resume that my daughter could say about this young man? So what if she said, well, he just spent two years as a short-term missionary in Papua New Guinea. Right? You guys, I love Papua New Guinea because we have friends there. I notice you guys support a missionary in Papua New Guinea. I would be impressed by that, wouldn't you? What if she said, um, well, in college he led a Bible study for the football team. I like football, so I'd be like, oh, that's kind of cool, Right? Led a, led a Bible study for the football team. Um, and so she might list other sorts of accomplishments, but she might even list sort of things that are status, right? Um, we all know sort of these celebrity pastors and these celebrity churches, and I'm not going to name one right now, but just whoever it is that you love, think of that church and that pastor, like the podcast master in your mind, right? When I'm thinking of fictional churches, I always like to name it Big Bucks Baptist Church. So we'll imagine that this young man grew up at Big Bucks Baptist Church. And not only did he grow up at Big Bucks Baptist, but his father is an elder at Big Bucks Baptist, and therefore they're personal friends with Celebrity Pastor. That's pretty cool, because then all of a sudden, as the father, I'm thinking, oh, maybe Celebrity Pastor will get to do my daughter's wedding, right? And maybe I'll even get to know Celebrity Pastor, and I can, right? And so all of these things that we tend to think are, we're, we're sort of just like Paul. Or what if, I think, what if on his great-great-grandfather on his father's side was Francis Schaefer and his great-grandfather's mother's side was Billy Graham? Then we'd be done, right? <laughs> I love Francis Schaefer. So we'd be done at that point. That's, that's sort of what we have from Paul, right? Sort of this list of things about him and his accomplishments that are super impressive that we would think, oh, that guy must be all right. But the whole point of doing this turns really abruptly, actually. Uh, we look down at verse 7. It talks about, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteous under the law, blameless. Verse 7, though, is when it turns. For whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. 
He mentions this resume and then he calls it how much he's lost. He counts it as lost three times, right? Counted as loss, counted as loss, counted as loss as rubbish. Let's talk about the word rubbish really quickly. This is sort of a, this is kind of a crass Greek word in the original language. The word can be translated a number of different ways. This can be refuse, it can be rubbish, it can be feces. Do we have any junior high boys in the room? Because one way to translate it is just poop. It's just sort of, it's a gross, crass word. Street filth. I was trying to get a mental image in my mind, um, and since I've been thinking about this passage, this last week I had the task. Um, my trash bin had started to get that gross, smelly, fly stink going on. Anybody have that stank going on in your black trash can? Not the recycling one. That was not so bad. The actual trash one, right? And I realized, okay, it's starting to get hot. I need to clean that. I need to clean it out. And so what I pull it over, I spray the hose up in it, and I just start watching all the wonderful things that have been stuck to the bottom of that trash can flowing out. And there's straws, and there's uh, packets of ketchup from fast food places or whatever else. There's just all kinds of stuff coming out. And then at the very bottom, like the stuff that's the hardest coming, is just this layer of black gook, right? And you got to spray it. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to get my hand in there. I didn't have to do that, thank goodness. But it just, it's just gross. And it all sort of just sludges out on the ground. And it's just laying there. And literally, the Holy Spirit said, that's what Paul's talking about right there. So closest we can get today to the rubbish and the refuse is that black gook that was in the bottom of my trash bin that I have to clean out every now and then. And then when I'm looking at that, the mental image becomes super interesting and crystal clear. All of this really impressive stuff, this resume that's unparalleled by any one of his contemporaries, Paul himself says that stuff that you thought was impressive is just like that black stuff. It's just filth. It's worthless. It's no good. You don't want it. You want to remove it. Isn't that it? It's just a radical change, isn't it? And the real point is not what we've hit yet. The real point is what caused the change? Following me? Like, the logic of the passage. If it just stopped now, we'd be like, wait, 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 something's missing. All this really good stuff is just, is no good. It's rubbish. Why? Paul, what happened? What created this huge switch of perspective, this huge change of values? Things that he was no doubt very tempted to place his identity in, right? Anyone relate to that? The things you've done, the status you have, maybe the family that you came from. The, my wife and I are both from small towns in Oklahoma. And when you're in a small town in a place like that, you sort of receive a lot of status from your family and your history. Both of our families are sort of multi-generational in these small towns. I would be walking around at 13 and old women would come up to me on the street and scold me for stuff. It just happened all the time because they knew my grandmother and my grandmother wouldn't want me to be chewing gum and walking at the same time. It wasn't quite that bad. But there was just... so. There's a temptation to be receiving a lot of status and all of those things. And we think, that's where my identity is. And we all have to be honest that we all are tempted to do that. So to take that, what, what would cause us to take all of this stuff that we find our identity in and our accomplishments and our achievements and just count it as rubbish? And that's really the point of the passage, right? The turn, the point of the passage is knowing Christ, that's what causes Paul. That those things that he once received too much uh, 
buzz from, those things that he was tempted to place his identity in are now rubbish because what happened to cause the switch in those scales is he came to know Jesus. Let's read it because that's exactly what happens. I'm going I'm to pick it up um, at verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may be, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, right? So gaining Christ, knowing Christ, having this ability to have a familiarity with Jesus is the thing that caused Paul to reevaluate his priorities in his life. Now, knowledge is tricky. So, as a philosopher, we kind of get made fun of a lot because we do some silly things and we talk about silly things. I'm not trying to give anyone sort of flashbacks to your intro fill class that you might or may not have hated as an undergrad. But one of the things we talk about as philosophers is knowledge. We talk about what does it mean to really know something? I'm not going to go into Descartes and um, Kant or anything like that. But um, I just want to say this we're going to boil it down. One thing we know about knowing is that it's trickier than we might have imagined it to be. Right, so what you know and what you don't know is a little bit trickier than you might imagine. Let me give you an example, right? Uh, probably most of you, maybe all of you, did not know that Rick became a PhD wearing a Bruce Lee t-shirt. But now you know that fact, right? So that's a knowledge of a fact. So you went from not having knowledge to having knowledge. And you might think, oh, end of the story. But can't that knowledge grow, right? If we saw the picture your knowledge, you're like, oh, I didn't even know it was that big of a t-shirt. Wow, that's really crazy. And then if Rick wears that shirt next Sunday to preach, which I think would be a great idea. I think you should do this as a, as a picture. You would even grow in knowledge more. Like, wow, that's the shirt, right? So your knowledge grows. That's just what happens with knowledge. But that's a fact. What about objects? Think about our relationship with just objects. I, I have a Toyota that has 147,000 miles that we bought brand new. My guess is, without any stretching of the truth, I personally have put 99, 98% of the miles on that car, right, by myself. My wife hardly ever drives it, it's my work car. I know that car really well, but that knowledge grows, doesn't it? That knowledge, I, I talked to Phil, my mechanic, and he might say, you know, these Toyotas, they have problems with whatever. I don't know much about cars, so if I say something, I'll probably embarrass myself and say something about a refrigerator or something that's wrong. But when Phil says your car might have this, what happened? My knowledge grew about my car. Or I might talk to someone else who has a similar car and my knowledge can grow. And so you want to think about knowledge as not a light switch on and off. It's more like a dial or a dimmer switch. Knowledge is constantly growing. Think about relationships. Knowledge really grows in relationship. You know someone, but you're just constantly growing to know them better, right? better and better and better. And so particularly, if knowledge is tricky, if knowledge about my car is tricky, can you imagine how tricky knowledge of Jesus might be? You may not be like me. Most of my life when people have said things, and I've grown up in a Christian church like many of you, Christian home and a Christian church, it, most of my life when people have said things like, well, how's your relationship with Jesus? I've just sort of like, I don't really even, I don't understand what you're asking right? And I don't really get it. I'm not, I'm not trying to be a problem. I'm not trying. <laughs> I usually wouldn't say it. I would just, in my mind, it's like, I don't really know what they mean. And, and there's all kinds of reasons for that. But I think part of it is trying to recognize, okay, well, 
relationship and knowledge necessarily go hand in hand when it's talking about knowledge of a person, right? So the question is, I want you to think in terms of not, did you know Jesus at some point in the past, but are you still growing in knowledge of Jesus? So that's exactly what we see in this passage. So we're going we're gonna to look at the last half. The last half of the passage is all about knowing Jesus. What is it about knowing Jesus that for Paul causes this radical transformation in values? And uh, this is a pretty deep, there's some really cool deep stuff going on here. But I think that what we want to do is look at three different ways that knowledge applies um, to knowing Jesus, knowing and having a relationship with Jesus. So three things that are true about knowing Jesus. Okay? They apply to knowing other things or other people as well, but from this passage, three things. The first one is, knowledge of Jesus involves the past, the present, and the future. It's not just a past relationship. It's not just a present relationship. It involves all three. So we're going to get this out of the passage, and it's sort of we're going to jump around. So knowledge of Jesus is past, present, and future. Let me show you what I mean by that. Starting in verse 8. I want you to be, pause, I want you to think about the way Paul's talking about his knowledge of Jesus, and he sort of oscillates between present knowledge and future knowledge. That's what I want you to notice. It's kind of interesting. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. That seems present. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That seems future. Following me? and be found in him. That's passive tense. That could be present or it could be future. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes to the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, that seems present. Righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him, future, and the power of resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is in the past, but our resurrection is in the future. And may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It's like, well, that was interesting, but what's the payoff? The payoff is knowledge of Jesus is past, present, and future. The dial, right? We have to continue growing in our knowledge. How many of us, if somebody said, do you know God? Our first thing that fall out of our mouth would be, yes, when I was 12 years old, I was at a youth camp and I became a Christian. I don't want to sort of like diminish that story. I don't want to try to say that's not important because it is important because it's evidence of past knowledge of Jesus. But man, we need to have present relationship with Jesus activities, right? We need to have sanctification. So that's about your justification. But what about your sanctification? What about your knowledge of Jesus today? What about your hope and your future knowledge of Jesus? That's what you see Paul saying here. Theologians call it an already, not yet. Our relationship with Jesus, like so many other things in our Christian life, there's some of it's true already. We really do know Jesus, but fully is not completely actualized. It's not completely true yet until the resurrection. And if you really want to blow your mind, you can think, wait, wait, wait. For eternity, we're going to be hanging out with Jesus. And for eternity, we're going to be learning more about Jesus. So the knowledge dial for Jesus never stops. It's just eternal. It keeps going. Every day, we learn a little bit more about Jesus' grace. Every day, a little bit more about his love. Every day, a little bit more about his, about his beauty. That's, that, I don't know about you, that hurts my brain. It shows that I have a rational reaction rather than an emotional reaction. Those of you, some of you are like, your brain? Doesn't that just fill your heart with love? It's like, yeah, I probably should do that, but it does primarily hits my brain. But anyway, we can talk about all that stuff later. The point being, a relationship with Jesus needs to be not so focused only on the past, but including the present 
and the future. And that's just like our human relationships, isn't it? Our human relationships. If you've met someone a long time ago, but you don't keep up with them, it's true that you know them, but you don't really know what's going on in their life today. So we can apply that the same way. The second thing we can learn about the relationship with Jesus from this passage is that relationship, like with, with humans, with Jesus involves the good and the bad times, right? And we see it from the text at the very end in verse 10, how Jesus is very, I'm sorry, Paul is very clear to connect the power of Jesus' resurrection with sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. So verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There's two sort of ideas going on here. The power of Jesus' resurrection, that's good, right? That's cool. That's, that's the happy stuff. That's the good. That's the victorious part of the Christian life. But it's completely sandwiched right alongside sharing in the sufferings with Jesus. And I think one of the things that's happening here is Paul's letting us know, hey, to know Jesus, you're going to have to know him both in the good times, the resurrection power, and in the sufferings. You don't get to choose. Because if we got to choose, we'd all choose the power of the resurrection, right? Jesus, I'll just kind of want to know. I want to be your good time friend. I'll be your sunny day friend. I don't really want any of that suffering stuff, though. I don't want to have to share in the sufferings of Christ. I don't want to have to die to self. I don't want to have to have health issues that cause me to be dependent upon you. I just sort of want the resurrected glory. (laughs) And it doesn't work that way. And with any friendship, it doesn't work that way. A friend who only comes alongside you when things are good and happy is not as good of a friend as they could be if they came along whenever things were hard as well. And Jesus is there for both. But more importantly, to know Jesus means you're going to know him in his resurrection power and you're going to know him in his sufferings. It's just, that's just what we're being told here. There's certain churches that sort of focus on and highlight only the resurrection power, right? Just sort of like Christian life is a victorious life, and we should always sort of just have victory all the time. There's not a lot of room for talking about the, 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 the struggles and the bruises and the struggles that come through our Christian life. And I've been both services really encouraged here that uh, from, from the very beginning, there's sort of been an awareness, hey, some of us are maybe not feeling victorious today. Some of us are carrying in some baggage, and this is the way the church should be. It's not unusual. There's many churches, but some don't do it like that to realize, hey, whether you're experiencing the suffering of Jesus today, or whether you're experiencing the resurrection power along with Jesus today, you're at the right place, thinking about Jesus and knowing him. The third thing about knowing Jesus, so the first one is past, present, and future. The second thing is good times and bad, resurrection power, as well as the sufferings. And the third one is we know Jesus by faith to create a righteousness that's not our own, right? And obviously, we could do a whole sermon on this. Look at verse 8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's wordy, 
But here's, he's, he's already talked about blameless and righteousness once earlier in the text, right? When he said, old Paul thought, old person Paul, thought that this list of accomplishments was his righteousness. But now we see that's why it's not, not only is it not righteousness, it's rubbish. Why? The only righteousness comes not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that's no good, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, right? A righteousness that doesn't come because of our resume. In fact, it only comes when we get rid of our resume and we do the same thing that Paul did. That righteousness only comes when we come to God as needy sinners recognizing we don't have any resume bullet points to impress him of any kind. We say, God, I'm just coming to you because I'm broken by faith. Uh, my favorite term that, to really show this, because I think he's contrasting the first part of the passage, right, is all his doings, all the things he's done. And here he's really trying to emphasize the non-doing nature of faith, right? And that's why it says, having been found. Where is it at? Be found, verse 9 that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. You don't, that's a very passive way to communicate that, isn't it? You just were found in Jesus. You didn't do much to get found. You just were. It's very passive. It's just the opposite of your resume. There's another theological term that's not mentioned here, but it's a similar idea, and that is of adoption, right? God talks about adopting us. Not by our own power, but by God's mercy and by God's love. He worked it out so that he could adopt people, so that then we could be found in him. My family, five years ago, adopted our two sons. So uh, we have two biological daughters and we have two adopted sons. Our sons came into our family at five and six years old. They're from Ethiopia. So the first couple of months were pretty crazy. They didn't speak English. We didn't speak um, Amharic. Um, they really actually spoke their tribal tongue even more than that. So it was, it was, when we look back on that, we all wonder how we all survived because it was sort of crazy. It was still kind of fun. They were great kids. They really were. They were really, uh, they're two bravest boys I've ever seen, right? Can you imagine moving into a house, living with people that don't speak your language that you have never met before? It's, it's fairly terrifying. Um, and so comes with that adoption stuff is just all of the, the funny little things that happen in between. Like, for example, uh, food was sort of a big deal for our boys, right? They're coming in. They're, they're never really eaten American food before, and shocking to me, maybe you won't be shocked about this, but at five and six years old, they loved Chick-fil-A. Isn't that surprising to anyone? That was just so surprising. They loved Chick-fil-A, and so they, you could turn, you can turn any kid loose at Chick-fil-A, right? So they, one day after church on a Sunday, they'd been in our family probably a couple of months, and one of my two sons picked up on some English faster than the other one. So we're driving home, and I think, I say, hey, we're, we're driving, I like, let's go out to eat somewhere, and one of the boys says, Chick-fil-A, Chick-fil-A, Chick-fil-A. Well, that was the sad day that they learned that Chick-fil-A is not open on Sunday, right? <laughs> so we're trying to explain to them, well, Chick-fil-A is not open on Sunday because it's owned by Christians, and they just feel like they want to give their workers Sunday off for rest. So we're just driving along, and then we take a turn to go into Wendy's, and my, one of my sons says, Wendy, she no love Jesus. <laughs> Makes sense. Good logic going on there. Theological adoption, very much like that, though, 
is the feeling that we are adopted into God's family, not by any of our own doing. And that's exactly what we see here. Our faith is credited to us as true righteousness. Paul thought he had earned righteousness with his old list, but it was nothing. It was rubbish. Where does the righteousness come from? The righteousness only comes through having faith in Jesus Christ. That's where that righteousness comes from. So let's, let's give a summary, kind of a big picture, and then we'll respond to some objections, and, um, and we'll pray. Um, so what's happening? This resume, Paul's tempted to find his worth and his value in it. Because he knows Jesus now, and he knows Jesus appropriately, he has a relationship with Jesus, he recognizes all those things that he was at one point in time putting too much stock in. He now has a, a turn of face and re- realizes these things are worth nothing. Instead, he wants to value Christ. In fact, that's exactly what he says. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Right? This knowing Jesus far outpaces that old resume. So here's some objections that I just foresee in the room. The first one is somebody saying, isn't Paul a bit of a zealot? Like, can't I just have some resume and a little bit of Jesus? Right? Can't I just sort of keep the best of the things and just kind of get a little bit of Jesus? Because I don't really know that I want to be all in like Paul. And, and that's, some of your hearts may be saying that, even though your, our mouths don't talk like that very often. And the first thing I want to say is just sort of uh, pastorally, whatever you're placing your faith in out of your resume is going to disappoint you at some point in time. At some point, it's going to bite you. Christ will not bite you, right? He will not disappoint. But secondly, this whole thing is set up. At the, what, what Rick preached at the end of last sermon, last week, was this idea of confidence in the flesh. Paul says, we can't have any confidence in the flesh. In the flesh technically means there basically confidence that you have of anything that's outside of Christ. It may be good things, Right? It may not all be sinful, or, or you might not even be getting sinful self-glory out of them, but there are things that you're receiving confidence from that are outside of Christ. Paul says you don't have any reason to have confidence in anything other than Christ. So yeah, Paul's a bit of a zealot, and I think he's unashamedly saying this is how we need to live. We need to be living, willing to rid ourselves of anything that we take our own esteem from other than Christ. Some of you might say, I don't really have a problem with uh, a list of all this stuff and confidence in the flesh because I don't have any confidence in myself, right? I have low self-esteem. I have low self-confidence. And I would just say, well, first of all, it should be easier for you then, right? If that's true. (laughs) Not trying to be smart. I just it should be. Secondly, you probably do have your own resume list. You're just not as aware of it. You probably have your own things that you're placing your faith in um, that you just, you sort of, they're just a different list. It's a different list than other people's, but you still have those things that you're clinging to that you think are going to maybe either earn you respect from people that are going to ultimately end up biting you. A third objection, I think this might be the honest one from many people in the room. It's just my guess, is I intellectually get it. I cognitively understand what you're saying about those things not being good and Jesus being better, but I just don't feel it, right? I just... I, don't, I just don't feel it. I don't value Jesus like that. I, maybe even I wish that I could. Maybe even I'm praying, God, help me. And I want to tell you, I resonate with that at times in my life, right? Maybe just life seems like it's just a downer. And it's like, man, 
I, I know that it's supposed to be enough for me to have Jesus, but I don't feel that way right now. I like to have Jesus plus something else. And they could be good things and necessary things, health issues and financial situations and whatever else. And the point is for you to say, okay, this is what I sell myself in those moments. Somehow I'm just not getting it. I'm not trying to be crass. We're just, we're just not really getting it because we're not really seeing the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And to help us get it, I want to read from Matthew 13. One verse from Matthew 13, 44, it's a parable of the hidden treasure. It's a parallel passage. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. See the parallel? All the things that the man once valued of his possessions, he's found something of much surpassing worth in the field, this treasure. And so he's willing to get rid of everything that he once valued in joy. I love that part of that little passage. I've never noticed it before. In joy, he's happy to rid himself of all that because of what he's found in that field is so much better. If you're like me and there are times in your life where you just don't get it, you don't see the surpassing worth of Jesus. I, my, my recommendation is remind ourselves of the gospel, what Jesus has done for us. He has given us forgiveness. He has taken our sin and separated as far as the east is from the west. And that those things in our life are important and God cares about them. But ultimately, because of what Christ has done on the cross, he has taken care of our greatest need so that we can have relationship with Jesus. So those are the things we can be thinking about. What are those things on your resume that you're tempted to still put your life in and your faith in? How can you hand those over? And secondly, what can we do to help one another value Christ more and better? And praying for one another and encouraging one another to sell all that we have emotionally, whatever else that those things are on our resume so that we can enjoy run to Jesus. We pray that the Spirit would help us do just that. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.